This is Reverend Kirk Lawton, minister at Ocean Lakes Family Campground, and this is our podcast. Our prayer is that this message may enrich your life as you find God especially meaningful to you. Thank you for worshiping with us. Good morning. It is a real joy once again to welcome you to our service from Ocean Lakes Family Campground here in Myrtle Beach. Today we're thinking about uh, the subject, You Make Me So Very Happy. Now let's sort of explore that as we go along. You'll see what I'm talking about by the title of the message this morning. Sam Keen once described a wise person as one who knows what time it is in his or her life. The task of knowing who and what we are is a real complicated task. And many people go through their whole life not really having any idea of what life is all about. Wouldn't it be great if we could have some kind of guide or roadmap or GPS or something like that that would help us to see not only where we are and where we've been, but also to some degree where we're going. Although we're all different in many ways, yet we do have much in common. We all begin life as infants. Then we move through childhood, adolescence, adulthood, and on into later life. Many of the experiences that we encounter along the way can be predicted. If we could just get some type of overview, some insight into what others have faced, then maybe it would help us to get ready for certain predictable crises. When we face problems head on, then we might also be in a better position to bring the resources of the Christian gospel to bear on our lives, to enable us to meet these experiences. So many people are totally unprepared to meet the growth challenges of life as they come. Different stages of growth slip up on them. They catch them by surprise and they explode under their feet. The results are absolutely disastrous. In spite of that old cliche, it really is true that what we don't know does hurt us. Ignorance is not an asset. It is a liability. When we face challenges that are new to us, we are prone to think that these are completely new and abnormal. Nobody's ever faced this before. Yet the truth of the matter is, that many challenges of our lives are not abnormal. They can be predicted. They can be prepared for. And so we're coming this morning to begin a series of five messages in which we look together at the various stages of life through which we all must pass on this journey from the womb to the tomb. At the outset, I want to acknowledge a debt of gratitude to a seminary friend of mine John Claypool was his name, for a much insight and wisdom from him, which have guided my thoughts during the preparation of this series of messages. And my hope and prayer is that as we go together on this journey for these next several Sundays ahead, that God will enable us all to be able to see better what time it is in our own lives and thereby know the peace that God alone can give to us 
in the midst of all these troublesome times that demand the very best of us. Our journey on this earth begins for all of us in exactly the same way. We are abruptly separated from the body of our mother, where we have been warm and secure. Suddenly, we have to begin to deal with life in another dimension. We begin this in a state of almost total helplessness and dependency. And then as the personhood of that little infant emerges, there are two growth challenges that must be faced. We're going to look at the first of these this morning and the other one next Sunday. The first growth challenge has to do with the matter of personal worth. We all know that the little child at the time of coming into this world is not yet at the point of being able to form mature ideas and concepts. But as this little life comes into the, this new arena, it does begin to send out all kinds of questions and signals. That little life begins asking things like, where am I now? What is this new place in which I find myself? Is this going to be the kind of safe, comfortable place that I once enjoyed in my mother's body? And then the infant comes to an even more crucial question. How is it that I am here? How does this world regard me? Is it good that I'm here? Am I welcomed or am I an intruder? Is my presence here cherished or is it something to be resented? Now, of course, the little baby cannot express these feelings in words, but in the interaction with the big people, here's where the issue of self-worth begins to take shape, where the child begins to get some vitally important impressions of self-image. Here is where the infant begins to get feelings as to whether or not its presence is positive or negative. At this point in life, everything has importance. The way the little child is held and how often, the kinds of words that are used in communicating, those subtle ways that the little child gets impressions about his or her presence. Yes, everything that the big people do to this infant has tremendous significance. It is from these experiences that the little child begins to draw some conclusions. Either it is good that I be here, I am of worth, I can trust these new surroundings, or I am, I am an intruder here. My presence here represents something that the big people resent. I must not have worth. I must not have a right to be here. And if this last situation is the case with an infant, then there's the beginning of all kinds of self-despising. Blessed is the child who, as he or she begins to send out those signals, finds that what comes back is something warm, something accepting, something positive. In one of Sam Keen's books, he tells about his visit with his father just before his father's death. One afternoon they were sitting, just the two of them, looking back over their life together. 
Sam found himself saying to his father, I don't know how you feel about everything that you've done with your life, Dad, but I want to affirm you and what you did as a parent. In this, I want to give you an A+. You were always there whenever any of us children needed you. You gave to all of us children the best single gift that any parent could give to a child. You took delight in us. You let us know in a hundred different ways, Dad, that you were glad we had been born. You made us feel in so many ways that you were glad we were here and that we had value and worth in your eyes and that our presence was a joy, not a burden to you. Dad, you gave us all a sense of delight. And for that, Dad, I shall always be grateful to you. Gordon Cosby once said that the first and most important responsibility any parent has to the child is for parents to enjoy their children. For those who may have been raised in a stern and rigid atmosphere where the emphasis is on obedience or the Ten Commandments approach, then those words might come as rather strange sounding. But if we can enjoy our children, if we can surround our children with that positive sense of delight, if we can really make them feel that we're glad that they were born and that they are a part of history, this is the foundation stone of a positive self-image for all of that little child's life. Isn't this the way the book of Genesis describes God's first reaction to the new creation which he has just given birth to? In Genesis, God is pictured not as having to create the world, but wanting to. It is as if one day God felt that it was so wonderful to be alive that uh, he may have said something like this, this is too good to keep. This is too good to hold to myself. I want to let others in on what I am enjoying. And so not because God had to, but because he wanted to, not in order to get something, but in order to give something. God, out of the freedom of his joy, called into being a world and then persons. According to the book of Genesis, when God had come to the end of that first week of creating, he looked back on what he had just made. And, and the picture we get there is almost that of a child rubbing his hands together in delight, jumping up and down and saying, it's good, it's good, it's very, very good. This sense of delight is that which surrounds creation. This is the way God feels about that which he has made. Earlier in our service today at Ocean Lakes, we sang the hymn, Morning Has Broken, and that has a positive sense of delight that God surely had in making this world. How blessed is the child who has the big people sending messages to him or to her at the beginning point of existence saying, it's good that you're here. I take delight in the very fact of your existence. 
Now, having said all this, let me make one or two comments or observations about this sense of delight. First, this sense of delight in the presence of a child has to be received as well as given. You simply cannot inject delight into a person the way you take insulin or penicillin and put it in a syringe and mechanically give it to a person. This delight is something that has to be given by one person, but it has to be received by the child. There is no automatic assurance that once it is given, it will always be properly received. Let's go back to the Bible again. Ask the father of those two prodigal sons about this. One of his sons was the upstart who took his share of what was coming to him and squandered it and sinful living. But then he remembered the delight that his father had in him. And so he returned home and he took part in the festivities which surrounded his homecoming. But the other son, the elder brother, seemed not to understand all this. And we see him standing outside in the darkness, scowling, never seeming to understand why his father was sorry when the prodigal had left. Now he couldn't understand why his father was delighted when the son came back home. This older brother's statement to his father, you never gave me anything, is a sobering reminder that delight is not something that we're able to inject into our children automatically. I say this this morning, my dear friends, in order to attempt to take a burden off of some parents. There are those parents who have given every indication of having done all they could to surround their children with delight. They have not been content simply with giving them money or things, but they've given to their children the best gift they knew how to give. And then for some strange, unexplained reason, that child has refused to accept this gift of delight. And so we need to remember that we as parents are playing only one hand in the game of parenting. We don't have the whole deck in our hands. The spirit of delight that we have to give also has to be received. This is the same way it is with us in our salvation which is offered to us through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now there's a second observation I want to make about this gift of delight. And that is that it can come from persons other than one's natural parents. I believe that it was God's original intention that those who conceived, gave birth, and became biological parents would be the natural channels through which this sense of delight ought to be given. However, God in his wisdom has provided some backup plans, some alternative systems when his first choice does not prevail. In our bodies, we have two eyes, two hands, two kidneys, two lungs, and so on. God has ways of getting his work done even when the original intention does not come to pass. Although this gift of delight ought to come through the parents, 
it does, does not necessarily have to. Sometimes when the natural parents either cannot give delight or will not give delight to the child, then I believe that God who has this delight in his heart for every child that he creates is going to find some way to get it to a child. It may be through an aunt, an uncle, a Sunday school teacher, a neighbor, grandparents, adoptive parents, or in some other way. What I'm saying here is that I believe God wants to see to it that every child is exposed to some affection during those formative years, even though it may not come through the normal channels. Let's go back again to the scripture. We have a real good example of what I'm talking about in the story of David in the Old Testament. He did receive this gift of delight, but it did not come probably through his natural parents. We don't know a great deal about David's early beginnings, except that he was the youngest in a large family. He had seven brothers and two sisters. One day, God said to Samuel, Saul is no longer capable of being king. I have called forth another to take his place. So I want you to go to a man named Jesse, for one of his sons is the one I have selected for this place of kingship. And so Samuel went to Jesse and told him that one of his sons had been set apart for kingship. Jesse never even thought about David because he had other sons who were bigger, other sons who seemed to have more favor in their father's eyes. And so you remember the account, Jesse parades all of his sons before Samuel but none of these sons were chosen as the one to be king. And then Samuel says to Jesse, do you have any other children? It is only then that Jesse remembers that ruddy baby of the family who was out in the field. David was then brought into the presence of Samuel and immediately God said, he is the one. And the scripture says that Samuel anointed David and this spirit of delight, the spirit of the Lord, came upon David from that day forward. You can read all about this in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And verse 13 is the one I just quoted. David was flexible enough to take this gift of delight wherever he could get it. Although parents ought to give this gift of delight to their children, Yet no child should ever be so consumed with self-pity and say, because my mother or my father didn't give me delight, I'm forever cut off from it. Oh no, it just could be that that mother or father, for many possible reasons, either could not or did not give it. And if we're flexible enough, there should be a Samuel somewhere who can give what might be called compensatory delight when natural parents cannot. Oh, what a responsibility we have as a church to be very sensitive of ways in which we as members of a church can move in and fill the gaps when natural family units may have broken down. This is one of the greatest mission fields that any church has 
to move into areas where there are personal needs and to give delight in the name of Jesus Christ to those who maybe did not receive it in the regular way that God wanted it to come. Now next Sunday we're going to look at a second growth challenge that's faced during childhood years. I earnestly hope and pray that you'll join with me as we continue to look during these Sundays at this vital stage of development through which we all must go. We come to a conclusion now of the message for this morning and what I've been saying gives us an opportunity now to respond to the spirit of delight that God has for you and for me. God loves us and he takes delight in our presence here on this earth. And in spite of our sins, God comes to us to say, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And though we have sinned, he has mercy and pardon. All of us have gone astray. We have warped, twisted, perverted the ideal that God had for us. But God still says to us, there's nothing you can do to make me quit loving you. And therefore, our response to him should be to say, well, if that's the way you feel about me, God, then that makes me want to love you even more in return. And so you see, we don't come to a loving Heavenly Father with fear, trembling, a bargaining spirit, or a desire to pay him for what he offers. There's no price on his love. It's free for the taking. But just like the gift of delight, although it may be offered by God, the transaction is not complete until we receive it. For those who are present in our worship service here this morning, we're going to be singing in just a few moments a hymn, No One Ever Cared For Me Like Jesus. And that's so true. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and sorrow from me. Oh, how much he cares for me. Is that your situation? Have you offered to God your prayer of thanksgiving for his love for you? And if you've never completed that transaction by receiving God's great love gift that he gave to you and to me, in his son, Jesus Christ, there's no better time or better place than to do that right now, wherever you are. Oh God, we pray that every person in the sound of my voice may come to say, yes, Lord, I know that you love me. Thank you for delighting in my presence, Father. Sometimes I can't understand that because I feel so guilty in many ways. But Father, you have seen our sin and you've said, I don't hold your sins against you. Thank you, Lord, for loving us and showing us the way for forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And may that be our experience even right now, either a reaffirmation or a first time receiving of that gift of delight and love from you. This we pray in the matchless name of your son Jesus. Amen.